An elderly Mennonite couple were celebrating their 50th anniversary and and preparing eventually to move out of their longtime country home to settle in with their children. As they were sorting through the attic, the husband came across a box. Inside, he found three bonnets and $2,500 in cash. <laughs> and he asked his wife, said, what, what is this? said, oh, my dear, every time I got angry with you through the course of our marriage, I would disappear into my sewing room and I would make a bonnet. <laughs> and he looked at it and said, three times. What a, what a blessed marriage we've had. Said, no, no, no. <laughs> Whenever I had made a dozen of them, I took them to market and I sold them for $10. <laughs> this week we're looking at anger. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is trying to talk about what it means to enjoy the good life, the blessed life. And then he's going to address the question of what does that look like? What is a good person? And uh, when it comes to dealing with that description of the good person, he chooses to start with anger. These are amazing words that we're going to read together. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. They're, they're amazing, but they're, they're confusing, they're challenging. Ultimately, I hope that you'll find them inspiring, but as is often the case, we have to do a little bit of work to get there. Let's, let's read those words. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. But truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. See what I mean? Confusing, but ultimately inspiring. Let's pray. God, these, these words, um, these words that have held such a place of prominence in the life of your church and the life of the world, we want them to be our words today. So would you draw close to us? Give us the gift of understanding but more than just that, the, the gift of discernment and application as we take these words into our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you'll agree that anger is a universal human problem. But as we begin to address these words of Jesus, it helps a little bit if we can place ourselves in the world of Jesus. In the ancient world, there were no police departments there were no courtrooms or district attorneys. And in that world, the rich and powerful could get away with almost anything. Maybe you think nothing's changed. But in the Old Testament, 
most of the laws were meant to protect the weak. That's where Jesus starts. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Exodus in chapter 20. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. If somebody was killed in those days, the family who had absorbed the victim had the right to appoint a blood avenger. Somebody would chase down and execute the murderer. The blood avenger would normally be the fastest, the toughest, the strongest guy in the family. This is their Vin Diesel. This is their version of the rock. And they they sent him out. And actually, as primitive as that sounds, that was a huge step forward in the realm of justice in the ancient world. But over time, human beings being what we are, started to think that when it comes to the larger issue of anger, that there are two kinds of people. That there are the good people and the bad people. And the best way to differentiate them was the good people are the non-murderers and the bad people are the murderers. It's setting the bar kind of low when you think about it, right? As long as I haven't actually iced someone, I'm in the good category. I'm clear with God in this area of the law. And so Jesus, again, he's beginning to describe a good person, a kingdom person. And he starts with anger. We'll look at this in, in a few weeks because he goes on from here to talk about sexuality and relational unhappiness and dishonesty and lots of other things. But, but I think the order matters. Sometimes people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they think, well, it's just a bunch of, of random sayings that got heaped in together. But I think the order matters. And Jesus starts with anger for a profound reason. It is the number one offender in the spiritual life. And you see it, it weaves its corrosive thread all the way through the Bible. Starts with Cain and Abel, then Jacob and Esau, then Joseph and his brothers, and on it goes. You look at real life and you find it there too. The National Center on Domestic Violence reports that 20 people a minute 20 a minute are physically abused by an intimate partner. Look at unpleasantness in the workplace. Look at miserable marriages. The vast majority of human wrongdoing involves anger. It involves contempt. And somehow, if you could eliminate that as the, as the fuel that fires all of these destructive things, you have the sense that you could undo the single greatest cause of human misery. And so here's where Jesus starts. Why is anger the number one problem? Well, it has to do with your kingdom. We've used this language before, right? What is your kingdom? Remember, we've been looking at Jesus, and the whole thrust of his message is that the kingdom of God is available now, that what's up there is coming down here. It starts in him and with his teaching and through his modeling and through the power of his crucifixion and the hope of his, of his resurrection. What's up there is happening down here, the kingdom of God come to earth. But it collides with our little kingdoms. What is our kingdom? Our kingdom is the sphere of influence in which my way reigns supreme. My word rules. I have my kingdom. And when you encroach on my kingdom... The result is anger, frustration. Hey, this is meant to go my way. Anger uh, is a form of energy, I guess, but it's, it's negative energy. 
It alerts us to the fact that something is wrong. It's like a proximity detector. Somebody has crossed the boundary into my kingdom. And it moves us to want to correct it. And that almost immediately moves to an instinctive level response that says, I will harm whoever or whatever it is that has crossed the boundary into my kingdom. I want to destroy it. And it just it comes out in silly ways. I'm on... I'm in a hurry. I'm trying to, trying to get to a meeting. And I notice that my shoelace has come undone. And I reach down to retie it, and it breaks. And my first thought in a panic is, stupid shoelace. Right? Now, I mean, we've got smartphones, I suppose, that have a certain amount of intelligence, but there's no such thing as a smart shoelace. But I'm angry. Stupid, stupid, stupid. So now I wear loafers. Right? See, the problem was that the shoelace had thwarted my will. And here's the problem. We know that the world is not set up in such a way that it will always please our will. And so we get angry, and we get angry a lot. I grew up playing a lot of racket sports, squash and and racquetball. Uh, Squash players, they hit a bad shot, and they get angry. I mean, we get really angry. You should hear what goes on in the squash court, right? But we're not angry at ourselves. We're angry at the racket. And if you ever want to see a squash player lose their temper, watch what they do to their racket as they smash it against the wall of the court. Why? Because the racket hit a bad shot. I read this week about a man in Bellevue, Washington, whose car got stuck in the snow. He got so furious that he took a tire iron, he smashed the windows of his own car, then he took out his pistol, you know this is in the States. He took out his pistol and he shot all four tires, he reloaded, and he emptied a clip right into the car. Police chief in Bellevue said it was a case of autocide. But the number one problem when it comes to anger is not shoelaces or squash rackets or automobiles. You know what the number one cause of anger is? It's other people. And pretty soon I'm not thinking stupid shoelace, stupid racket. I'm thinking that stupid, stupid person. And now we're getting to the real problem. The problem that Jesus is concerned about is not just that my emotions get aroused. It's not just the problem that my will has been thwarted. The problem is now that I will harm to another person. I believe that they're stupid, they're bad, they're deserving of bad things in their life. This is the destructive dimension of anger. Anger is not just that my will got thwarted it really moves very quickly to the will to cause harm. I want to cause them harm. And now for Jesus, it is never okay to will harm to another human being. Let me say that again. If you remember nothing else today about the worldview, the perspective of Jesus and the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, here it is. To Jesus in the kingdom of God, it is never okay to cease willing good for another person. It's never okay to will them harm. That's why he's so concerned about anger. 
Why, it's so fundamental. You've heard it said, this is the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And the word he uses here is a word that intent, it indicates a kind of intense anger. Actually, let me give you the word. It's a great word. No, it's a terrible word. But the word is orgizomenos. Say that. Orgizomenos. The first word, orgi. You know that word. Yeah, that's the word. It is an orgy of anger. Just this, this simmering cauldron of anger that's going on. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You know that, but I tell you, anyone with this simmering cauldron of anger will be subject to judgment. And we think, really? I mean, really? Jesus, just getting angry, is, is that enough? Does that trip the alarm? Sounds far-fetched. I mean, sounds like he set the bar impossibly high for us. And so people have tried to find all kinds of ways to get out of it. Some people would say the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering a teaching about the kingdom of heaven for the people of Israel. But the people of Israel rejected him and rejected it. And so it all falls down. It wasn't for us, it was for them. It's not true. Some people have said that Jesus really is only referring here to unjustified anger. You must admit only that unjustified anger is forbidden. This is prevalent. Many of you, depending on the translation, if you look, if you have your printed Bible, you might have a little footnote to this verse. Have a look down in the bottom. If you do, you'll have a little footnote in your Bible that says something like this. Some ancient manuscripts add the phrase, anybody who is angry without cause at their brother or sister. What's going on there? Do you have it, some of you in your Bibles? In the ancient world, they didn't have printing presses. There were no word processors or anything like that. You couldn't just put it on a memory stick and hand it on. Everything that gets copied, gets copied meticulously by hand. And often the scribes who are copying something, as they're copying, they, they're thinking, they're, they're reflecting on what they're writing. And so they'll write a little note in the, bar, in the margin. I wonder if Jesus meant unjustified anger. Just a little thought in the margin, the same way you might make notes in your Bible. But then they hand that on, and the next scribe copying says, oh, here's a little bit that got sort of pushed out to the margin, and it gets put into the middle. And then that gets copied in, and copied in, and copied in. But you understand what's going on. People are struggling just with the raw teaching of Jesus. It has to be just unjustified anger that's bad. If I'm experiencing righteous anger, I mean, that, that must be a good thing, right? That's okay. But what if that's not what Jesus was saying? What if we just get back to the raw teaching? Anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. People want to interpret Jesus. They want to reinterpret him to let themselves off the hook. It makes me angry when they do that. But it's righteous anger, so, okay. One of the dangers of anger, I mean, it's present right in that little statement, that little exchange that we just laughed about. Because it makes me feel superior. You will never meet a humble, angry person. Angry, anger feeds human vanity. 
Jesus' teaching on anger is, is really, I mean, it's simple when you read it. It stretches us, but it's not hyperbole. Here it is again. God never stops willing the good, ever, for anyone. Never. God is perfectly capable simultaneously of discerning and judging someone's actions, of knowing precisely how much of the responsibility for that might be genetics and and how much is their environment and how much is personal choice. And at the same time, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly willing for that person's good. God can do that. But as for me, as soon as I begin to indulge anger, I tend to stop willing good things for the person that I'm angry at. And as soon as I cease to will for somebody's good, then God's purposes are not being accomplished in my life. God will always judge that as an evil thing. What I'm doing is choosing the kingdom of the self over the kingdom of God. That's why anger is dangerous. And Jesus knows Because it justifies not willing good things in the life of another person. But then it moves to another phase of anger. And here's where it gets even more corrosive. Anger begins to leak out in all kinds of other forms of contempt. I mean, psychology has sort of made its bones with that awareness. That anger leaks. That anger accounts for all kinds of things. Anger turned inward becomes suicide, depression. Anger leaking outward can become sugary, sweet sort of platitudes with a brooding cauldron of resentment underneath. Jesus gives two pictures of this in the sermon. Here's the first one. He says, anyone who says, Racha. Now, you need to say that with me. First, You need to work up a little bit of spit in your mouth. (laughs) Get it in there. And I want you to imagine that what you're saying, you're going to do this in a second, so that Raqqa is spelled R-A-X-A. Get a good, harsh, guttural X, okay? Now, turn away from the person next to you. (laughs) Look down at your feet and say, Raqqa. (laughs) Raqqa. Now you get the sense of the word. This is an insult. I mean, it's just, it's bitter and it's brutal. It's one of the ways that anger is leaking out. As a society, one that is so, uh, I don't know, we just seem committed to anger and profanity. In comedy, in drama, in action, I think what you're seeing is the seething underbelly of anger being, being unresolved in the life of a whole society. Rah. He goes on to say, here's another example. Not only are you answerable to Sanhedrin for that, but anybody who says, you fool, in danger of the fires of hell. And we could go on in another sermon to talk about what that means. It may not mean exactly what you first think of. Gehenna was a, a garbage dump outside of the city walls. Still not an alluring image at all. Rachas and insults, you fool. I mean, it just, it was the ancient way of saying, you piece of, 
Yeah. Often contempt involves language. The language of filth. Some people will read what Jesus says here and think, I don't explode, I don't yell, I don't curse. So I don't have an anger problem. Oh, honey. (laughs) Oh, honey. We have an infinite number of ways to convey our anger, don't we? How we look at somebody, or how we refuse to look at them. How we speak to somebody, or how we refuse to speak to them. How we touch them, or avoid touching them. Sarcasm, sabotage, forgetting, passive aggression, withdrawing, avoiding, placating people out of fear or appeasing them wrongly. All of those things, they can be every bit as unloving and sinful as exploding in Rachel-like expressions of wrath. Here's the point, though. Jesus is not trying to make a newer, harder set of rules. Sometimes people will read the Sermon on the Mount as a list of hard rules. They'll think, well, not only am I not allowed to murder anybody, I was good with that one, now I can't even call them a fool. Lots of other bad words I can use that Jesus didn't mention. So, <laughs> He's not giving new rules. He's illustrating what it looks like when I have a heart pervaded by love that comes out in the form of, of willing the good of other people. This is inside-out goodness we talked about two weeks ago. Surpassing goodness that we talked about last week. I've been in court a whole bunch of times over the past few weeks with, with members of this family going through some of the most unbearable experiences that you can imagine. And sometimes I'm sitting in the courtroom and I'm waiting for our case to be called on the docket and I'm listening. And I'm amazed at how many of the cases have to do with domestic violence. And there's no excuse for it. It's an evil in God's sight. We know it has to be stopped. But here's the thing. You can't, you can't address it. You can't eliminate it without addressing the toxic undercurrent of anger. All of those corrosive desires that lead to those outbursts of violence. Courts are starting to realize this. Because they're not just ordering a a sentence of incarceration. They're, they're mandating treatment. You need to go to anger management. But here's the thing. You can't just avoid anger by trying to avoid anger. My heart isn't transformed. The will to harm another person, the will to sin will always triumph. It will sneak out of me in a thousand ways. Anger eats behavior modification for breakfast. Let me just say that. Anger eats behavior modification for breakfast. Unless you can accompany inner heart change, you can tether that to outward behavioral change, you will not win the struggle. So now we're going to turn to Jesus' teaching on anger. And we're going to go through a couple of points quickly and... uh, Boy, then we're going to turn it back over to God and say, will you work in our lives this week? Jesus teaching on anger. Specifically, how can living in the kingdom of God transform our angry hearts? What does that look like? Well, he's going to talk about two things that you don't do 
We've already mentioned those. You don't live with the will to harm. You don't say destructive things like racha or fool. But then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about two positive things. He's going to give two illustrations of what a kingdom person, what a person of surpassing goodness does. And again, these aren't laws. These are illustrations. Let's look at them. Here's the first, and you have these in your notes. Make reconciling relationships a higher priority than doing something religious. You see there, if you have Matthew 5 open, where he says you're bringing your gift to the altar, you're doing something religious, good thing, but then you remember that you've got problems with somebody. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, maybe it's a mix, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, do the hard work of reconcili- reconciliation first. That's what love does. We just love. <laughs> reconciliation, boy, big word. Bigger challenge. It's in the grocery store lineup again this week. I feel like I have a grocery store lineup story every week. Yeah. But I was in a hurry and it was taking forever. I'm in the lineup and I'm thinking, well, you know, the people in this lineup are so self-centered. They bring their children who are moving so slowly. They have too many things for the express line. They're fumbling around for change in their purse. You had 10 minutes to get ready. Get ready. They can't remember their pin code. Come on. And I realized when I was standing there that in anger I was viewing every single person ahead of me as the enemy. They're obstacles to my getting through the line. They're the reason I'm going to be late. I'm supposed to be a minister of Jesus, right? But in that moment, those are the kind of toxic thoughts going through my mind. It's not coming out of my mouth, but I'm sure it was there in my eyes and my face and my body. And here's the thing. I do this even when I don't have a deadline. I just, I get frustrated at the whole deal. And the invitation of Jesus is not, okay, grit your teeth, avoid killing them. Yeah. Don't say racha, don't call them fools. Everything else is fair game. No. His invitation is this. Put your ego to bed. Die to that part of the kingdom of self. Live in the reality. And the reality is, I cannot, by any force of will, will align to move faster. I'm not in charge of airports or traffic or weather. I live in God's kingdom, not mine. So I don't get frustrated about that stuff. I can let go of the things that aren't in my control. And I can seize the things that actually are. And I can start to will good for the people who are ahead of me in this line. And I started to do that. What a great price for that tin of cookies. Wow. Where did you get those? Hey, can I help you lift up that case of water onto the belt? Boy, that's that's a beautiful hat. Did you make it yourself? Oh, you've made hundreds of them and you sell them at the market. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I got to my appointment on time. You know what? Even if I'd gotten there a little late, I don't think God would have been reaching for the aspirin bottle in heaven. I don't think the kingdom would have been damaged. Because in God's kingdom, here's the thing. I cease to be attached to my will always being done. I cease that attachment And I live in the goodness of God's kingdom. And without anger, I am able to say that 
that one of the things that people do when they are trying to seek reconciliation is that they will reach out to others before they will reach up in some act of, of religious ceremony. I want to talk about that just a little bit for a moment. I know we're pushing our time, but reconciliation is a complex thing. It may take time. It may take years. It, it may take multiple conversations, I know. Part of that is in the hand of the other person. They may be unwilling to do it, but, but I want to say to some of you that are rationalizing not doing this, you're saying, hey, it's their problem, it's not my fault. The relationship breakdown is their responsibility. I'm waiting for them to make the first move. Don't wait. I know she'll never change. I know that. I don't have to seek reconciliation. My conscience is clear. I don't even feel anger anymore. Jesus never said, if your brother or sister has a problem with you, manage your emotions so you don't feel angry anymore. It's not what he said. Contempt avoidance is not the same as love. Love wills good for other people. And I know it's complex. I know the other person might be hard-hearted. I get it. Maybe all you can offer God is a genuine willingness. I get it. But gang, an awful lot of people let themselves off the hook when it comes to reconciliation. Love seeks reconciliation. Love wills reconciliation. If you're not doing that, if you're not willing that, if you're not open for it, if you're not seeking a significant relationship where it's gone wrong to make it right, don't kid yourself that you're obeying Jesus. You can't control the outcome, but you can control your heart. Here's another how that Jesus gives. How to live in the kingdom when it comes to anger. Initiate genuine kindness to your foe. And here's a second illustration. This is a courtroom deal. Suppose someone's taking you to court. You're in a legal battle. Financial battle. Some of you know what it's like to be shafted out of money by other people. Any of you really got taken? Some of you? What do you do? Jesus says, settle matters. Settle them quickly. Actually, the word he uses is make amends with them. Be well disposed towards them. Maybe you try to understand what motivated them. That doesn't mean that you excuse their action, that you give them what they want, but for sure, it does mean you still seek what God has that's best for them. It might be a legal deal. Some of you have been through legal processes in their heart. It might be an, uh, a workplace deal. Maybe you have a rival who's mistreated you. Maybe you have an enemy at school, a difficult neighbor, a trouble, a troublesome spouse or ex-spouse. Pray for them. Ask God to show you if there is some kindness you could do for them. Not out of fear, not out of obligation, but just out of love. And maybe love isn't there. Ask God to show it to you. The main point with the example, seek reconciliation, do kindness to an enemy, isn't obey these, they're new laws. Jesus is inviting us to ponder what kind of life, what kind of feelings and moods, what habits of the mind, what habits of the body and speech would you find in the kind of person who just routinely pursues reconciliation above religious correctness who would reach out in 
in relaxed warmth to win over an enemy. And when you ponder that in your life, you begin to get a vision for righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. So I've got two more practices there in the notes. Um, I'm going to leave those for you to contemplate this week. Just a quick word about the last one. Take your anger to the foot of the cross. You see, the cross reminds us that there is this great battle going on between good and evil, between love and anger, between willing the best for somebody and willing them harm. And anger says it's okay for me to will bad things to contemptible people. It's why almost all evil involves anger. It's why Jesus starts with anger. The battleground between good and evil, between love and anger, takes place here first. So this week, when your will gets thwarted, when anger begins to swell in you, use that as an opportunity to hand it back over to God. Take it to the foot of the cross. Lay it there at the battleground and pray simply this, God, your will, not mine, be done. And then out of the unhurried, unworried abundance of the kingdom of God, I hope you discover the freedom of a will that's surrendered. Again, your will, not mine, be done. And in the light of the cross, that there is grace and grace alone. Next week, the sermon title is On Sex, an old favorite. (laughs) Don't miss that one. (laughs) Let's pray for today. Heavenly Father, the teaching we've explored today and its application in our lives, it's revolutionary. It's going to take courage. It's going to take a level of tenacity and commitment that is well beyond our own ability, but nothing is beyond your ability. So if it's going to require the Spirit's interceding work in our lives, let the Holy Spirit come prompting us and leading us into those hard conversations around reconciliation, taking those fiery emotions down a notch before we say or do something that can't be undone. God, replacing the will to harm with with the kingdom-shaped will to seek the good of others. And God, rooting all of it in the cross, the cross of Jesus, which is our strength, our song, and our hope all our lives long. In his name we pray. Amen.